0: You're listening. So we, Wee- Wee- the Aether podcast, with host Adam Evans, within and without. Welcome. Koi, or, or is it v- Vishudha? Vishudha. <laughs> okay. So when did you actually change or update your name? It's
1: been almost, It's been over two, about two years now. Uh, well, I was I was initiated by my swami, so that was the name he gave me. So I kind of <laughs> took that up as a sign of like respect and gratitude for him providing me that.
0: Okay. Which which Swami?
1: Uh, Swami uh, Sarva Devananda. Okay,
0: cool. Yeah. Very nice. Um, so just to kick things off, do you mind introducing yourself? What it is you're involved with, uh, what you do sort of on a day-to-day basis?
1: Yeah, so uh, my name is Rashida Das. Some people might have known me as Koi Fresco for the past few years. Uh, I essentially teach spiritual philosophy uh, on YouTube for about four odd years now to roughly half a million people. I've written uh, two educational books, one on kind of the journey through my life and where I went uh, from, you know, the lowest of my personal lows, drug addiction, being in jail, uh, to kind of working my way out of that system and out of those toxic mentalities. And then a second book on meditation It's called The Meditation Manual. So it's just a bunch of simple meditation methods. And now I continue making videos online and I'm now doing a bunch of uh, physical in-person workshops and lectures and stuff like that. And currently working on uh, my third book.
0: Very cool. Yeah, very active. I I can tell from like all the social media stuff. So just to, uh, I know you mentioned jail there. So yeah, that, that is an extreme low, I guess a lot of people would say. What but, brought you into into jail?
1: Yeah, it's about, it's about as far down as you can go where, I mean, when, when you're in the midst of it, it's obviously, it's horrible, but you know, in retrospect, it's, it's a, you're really thankful for it because once you hit that rock bottom, you really don't have any more fears in life. You don't have any more worries about how low you can go because you've been there. You've seen the depths of your own situations you can fall into. Uh, I, I got a, a DUI. Uh, with injury when I was 18 it was the week I turned 18 so I'd only been 18 for a few days Uh, and I had a friend in the car and they got hurt and because of that uh, the system where I lived in Florida is very conservative it's very uh, wants to make examples of you so I was made an example of so I spent a year in jail uh, because of that charge Uh, and that was you know my first major major transformation i guess you would say it wasn't as if during during the time i was in jail and when i was in there i was like oh yeah this is this is great I, I hated every minute of it you know it was a very difficult time but in retrospect it was the first time i ever had the ability to really or the chance to stop and kind of self-analyze you know instead of blaming everyone else and being upset with everything else going on around me it was the first time i had the opportunity to really sit with myself and kind of have to face my own dilemmas my own issues and essentially take responsibility for the situations that I was in.
0: Mm-hmm. And what did you find, like, what was that first feeling you had, like, day one, when you, like, the cell door closes and you're like, whoa, this is real now, you know? What was that first feeling you had?
1: I think pretty much everyone, I think their first time in jail and you recognize this the more you go, when you, when you're in there, you see other people coming in once you've had a few months in and you're used to it. And everyone has the kind of same reaction. It's just, it's almost like denial. You know, you're in there, you're in jail and you're on your bunk, but your brain is just, it doesn't, hasn't accepted it yet. So it doesn't, it doesn't feel real. A lot of people, I did it too. You kind of just want to try to like sleep it off. You know, it's such a horrible reality. You're not stuck in this box that you just want to lay down and sleep for 12 hours a day. But you can only do that for so many days, you know. You can only try to escape the reality that you're you're faced with for so many days. So it was kind of just a kind of like it was one of the first times you have you have a realization of well, this is it. You know, there's no there's no excuses. There's no escaping. Like I have to actually face this. And if you've never had to face a tough situation like that, and I really hadn't before that point, uh, it was it was just your brain constantly trying to deny the reality of where you are until it finally starts to sink in. So it was a really heavy kind of realization to have. Definitely wasn't uh, fun in the moment when you were, you know, when I was experiencing it.
0: Yeah, it seems pretty crazy. It's almost like it would be the extreme meditation retreat to go get put into a 10 by 10 cell and be left with your thoughts. No more devices, no more technology to, to distract you. It's like you got to do the work now. You're, you're in that space. So, yeah, that, that
1: was one of the things I realized. After a couple years being out, and I started uh, going to a lot of temples and studying at my temple, and I have a lot of friends that are uh, monks and brahmacharis that live in temples as well, and I sort of realized the more I spent time with them or was in their temples or we were hanging out in the area, it made me realize, I finally kind of put two and two together, like you just said, and you realize how much being in jail, it's like a temple in a sense, in a meditative sense. It's very simple, white walls, the same outfit every single day, the same meals five days a week, uh, the same people around you consistently you're in this space and you have to basically deal with it as such and find a way to process it and there's no external stimuli distracting you from the moment you're forced to be present wherever you're at
0: Mm -hmm. yeah it's pretty crazy i've I've never been in that situation i can only imagine i've spoken with people here and there that have been and yeah it's it's pretty remarkable you mentioned you had some issues with drugs as well what was it like a drug addiction you were going through
1: yeah. Uh, well, when I was 16 in a one year period, I had two of uh, my close friends, uh, both killed. So I, one was shot to death and one was stabbed to death. And it was, I lived in a, you know, I lived in a city or a town where that's like not a thing where that does not ever happen. And it just happened to happen back to back within about 12 month periods Two people I'd known for quite a long time. One of them I had known since I was, you know, in, in second grade. So almost a decade, uh, and I mean, I've, I've never had any of my, I mean, it, I mean, I'm 26 right now. I still have all four of my grandparents. Uh, I've never really lost anyone in my family or close to me. So this was the first time that death had really infiltrated my life and I had to accept it as reality. And at that point in my life, I was too young and I was, I guess, too immature to accept it. I had no way to accept it. I couldn't understand it. I couldn't, you know, validate it or, or rationalize how it was happening or how it was real, especially to these young, good people. Uh, so I just, I did what a lot of people do is I bypassed it. You know, I, I didn't know how to process it. I didn't know how to talk about it. Uh, my dad wasn't around, so I didn't have anybody to vent to about it. So I ended up turning to drugs. And that was my my medium of coping, of getting out of that suffering, of getting out of that fear and that anxiety over the fact that, you know, this can happen to anybody and life can be cut short. Uh, and since I didn't know how to process it, I got sucked into different drugs. First, I was, you know, smoking weed, but then it moved on into a uh, prescription medication, which was you know the big one that hooks you, and that's the the opiated you know the opiate uh, epidemic is what we're still facing in America. But that was what kind of caught hold of me, and you know about a year of my life, I, I just don't really have any memories from that year because it was every single day I was on these on these pharmaceutical pills, just trying to you know drown out everything so I didn't have to feel at all. And I just I eventually got to a point where I was taking I was a, I got to a point where I was taking a dose that would for a first time, you know, six foot five, 300 pound man would, would knock him unconscious. And I, I'm a five, I'm five, six, I barely weigh 135 pounds. So I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I'm not that size. And I was taking doses that were key. I wasn't even feeling it almost. So I just had a big realization when I got to that point, you know, what, what am I doing? How am I, how have I let myself slip this far? I used to be very into being active in sports and stuff like that and outgoing and, and, you know, accepting and embracing of what's going on here and now and now i've let myself get so far detached from my own emotions and my own processes and my own thoughts that uh i'm 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 resorting to these lengths to escape it and i just couldn't do it anymore but it it took about a year you know a year of, of being lost in it for me to really finally get to that breaking point where i could uh thankfully you know learn to push through it
0: Mm-hmm. and what was that like final straw so to speak before you kind of woke up and realized like wow I've been in this dream for the past year and you kind of wake up from it like wow what have I been doing so was it like one particular incident that led you down that sort of get, take you out of that uh, state you were being in or was it like a gradual thing leading up where it was just slowly becoming like I assume you were doing that almost like a numbing type of thing but then at the same time I don't want to make any assumptions on I know the ego can tend to want to destroy you at the same time. It's very self-destructive, that process you would have been going through. So what would have been that final last straw that, that caused you to go through a new transformation of yourself?
1: Yeah, you're definitely correct. The ego definitely does, especially with, with downers and barbiturates. They, they, they're kind of like alcohol, you know. Once you start doing it, you start going, oh, woe is me, pity me, that means I'll do more. And then once I'm drunk, oh, I'm already drunk, so I hate myself even more, so I'll keep drinking. And pills work the same way. You start doing them, then you start, you dislike yourself, so you do more. And then you realize you've done more, so you keep disliking yourself, and it's just a slippery slope all the way down. But yeah, like I said, it's pretty much, when you start, you, I was on Xanax. So uh, my big, that was my big kind of addiction was, was Xanax, specifically. Uh, and when you start, you only need about a milligram, maybe sometimes 1.5 to have like a really, to be really high from it. Uh, and I got to the point where I was taking five to seven, which is like six full pills. And that's absolutely ridiculous. No one should be taking that much, uh, especially not somebody of of my body size. Uh, and like I said, that's an amount that you can only reach through continued buildup of tolerance and addictive use. So once I got to the point where I realized I was using almost a week's worth when I first started in a single in a single setting was just where my brain and I kind of guess my, my rational mind kind of snapped back in and was like, what is what is this? You know, this is ridiculous. This is absolutely crazy. And uh, I, 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 I'm thankful, you know, I never really had to go to any addiction counseling or anything like that. I've just had the ability, thankfully, in my life to, I think when I realize uh, things are slipping away, I can kind of snap back into who I was before, or I guess the mentality of getting back into control and not letting it take over. And so I, I basically tapered back down off them over the course of a few days and
0: uh, haven't done them since. That's great. So do you find a lot of people, because you encounter a lot of people online through social media, YouTube, Instagram, all that stuff. Do you find people go through similar troubles? Uh, I'd assume in their youth because I, you know, yeah. most people would, but do you, do you encounter a lot of people that have gone through similar circumstances and, and how do you find, or what's like the typical best advice you can give? I mean, even if someone's listening right now and they're experiencing similar circumstances, what piece of advice could you give to someone so that they don't have to wait a year to snap out of it, that maybe they can hear this and then tomorrow morning start to make a little adjustment?
1: Yeah, I think a big thing is to, to not be ashamed of yourself for being in addiction or being, you know, it, it's a mental it's a disease. We, we treat it as a crime or as something that people choose to do, but nobody wakes up and goes, you know, I'm going to become an addict or I'm going I'm to get addicted to this or that. It's a disease. It, it's something that our, our mind slips into. So, a big thing for a lot of people is that they don't talk about it because they feel constantly judged and ashamed. And I meet tons of people. And that's why I'm very open, you know, talking about my addiction in my past, because I want people to realize that not everyone uh, is perfect. You know, we all go through our trials and tribulations in life and that we can all come out on the other end and, and survive and not only survive, but thrive. So a big thing is to, first of all, not, not feel shame in the fact that you might be dealing with a certain addiction. It's natural. It's human. You know, some people are addicted to pills. Other people are addicted to, to Pepsi. Other people are addicted to watching, you know, Rush Limbaugh on Fox or watching C-SPAN. We all have addictions. Uh, but if, if you have an addiction to a compound that's kind of pulling you down uh, and you feel ashamed from that, you feel ashamed because of it, you're going to keep on using it because you'll, since you feel that shame, you won't want to admit that this is a thing that can change. And it'll, it'll kind of place you into that victim mode where you can sense, continuously go, like I said, Ah, well, this sucks. I'm already here. Woe is me. I'll just keep doing it. But if you can stop and realize, okay, look, I have an addiction. I I admit that. The big thing is admitting it, first of all, to ourselves. I see that I have these addictive tendencies. I'm not ashamed by it. I realize this is a mental disease. That means I have the ability now to look at it from a light where I'm not hating myself for being here, but just realizing that I am here, being here, looking at it from a neutral vantage. And when you can start to do that a little bit more, it makes it easier to to reach out and speak to others or to do research on how I can move out of this or what practices I can partake in to replace it. You know, a big thing I tell people is you're not just trying to cold turkey, stop your addiction. A lot of times with certain, especially with prescription medication, you can't do that. It can kill you. Uh, Alcohol as well. You can't just go cold turkey. It has that withdrawal effect. So. A lot of times, my advice is to, to replace that addiction. You know, addiction usually stems from most people really who have addictions have addictive personalities. It's just the nature of the mind. I, I have an addictive personality myself. So when I get into something, and I enjoy it. I really get into it and I make it a consistent thing. And I understand that. I use that to my advantage now for my own spiritual journey and for my own growth and development in different ways. And uh, all the activities I do now, such as rock climbing and snowboarding and stuff. Uh, I'm definitely addicted to those things. I love them. But that's a big thing is you replace the unhealthy addictions with the healthy addictions. You're not trying to deny the fact that you have addictions. You're trying to transform them into progressive ways of acting. Mm-hmm. Like any, any uh, CEO or builder of a business or spiritual aspirant to very deep into their practice. It's not that they're just casual people trying these things and doing these things casually. There's an addiction there. There's a consistent diving into and loving and embracing and wanting to always be doing this whether it's success monetarily or liberation spiritually. Mm-hmm. So it's just transforming that that nature of, of wanting to interact with something from a destructive and deadly compound into a healthy, productive, either lifestyle or, or object of uh, interest.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like how you kind of even alluded to the fact that it's like a human tendency to sometimes get addicted to something, whether it's unhealthy or healthy, but just like you, you just got, get so accustomed to doing something. Yeah. You know, a little, a little anecdote. Just recently I, I cut out caffeine in the mornings because yeah. I was pounding back like four coffees before, you know, 1 PM. And it's like, I had to kind of step back and be like, uh, maybe I should like adjust this a bit because I, it's, it's not, it can't be healthy. And it's funny after like two days, I started going through caffeine withdrawals just yeah, from something this. so simple right uh, and i've even gone i think it's the smell of the coffee i like in the morning too this is all part of that like human tendency to just get like to attach to something cling on to something be like oh that's it's all sensory right yeah. uh, so i decided to start just trying decaf so now i've eliminated the actual caffeine aspect but i'm doing the decaf coffee because i like the taste and the smell so i'm still getting that aroma so i guess the next step from there would just be wake up and only pound back water and not even bother with the decaf, but it's like a progressive stage thing for me. Um, I just thought it was really interesting because like so quickly you can get addicted to something. And so quickly you have those withdrawal symptoms, like within 48 hours, I had like headaches. I was sweating. I couldn't even get to sleep that night. Like just absolutely crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, so do you have, uh, actually, before we get into, I have some questions here, as I mentioned, but before we get into that, I did want to ask you about, because we're on addictive stuff, I know you've been putting on a lot of content about the use of applications, social media, mobile devices, because this is like really the new global addiction, right? And I think I saw a video that you put up just recently about the dating apps, the swiping. Yeah, yeah. What's your take on that? Dating apps.
1: Yeah, I I think uh, for the most part, I mean, psychologically, there's lots of tests. And the, the problem with dating apps is that you, it's very easy to create a, a fallacy in your mind to support it because so many people go, well, oh, I found my partner on there and they're great. Or, well, I, well, I met an amazing person and we, we're married now. And that's a validation that doesn't you know, really stem from a logical point. It's, it's an individual, specific, random occurrence. But in, in, the, in the majority field, and I myself, I used to use dating apps for, for uh, a couple of years. On a psychological level, studies show that the problem with dating apps and the reason they're, they're so destructive to us in the long run is because of two reasons one they create a, a they basically drop us into what's known as commoditized viewing the psychological kind of perspective where you're, by using these apps you are treating people like a product you know obviously when we're out in the world and where we're interacting of course we're going to see attractive people and instantly we'll commoditize them slowly but we're not looking at every single person or every single female or every single male as a commodity We're seeing them as people, as a grandmother, as an employee, as a server, all these different things. And then every once in a while, someone catches our eye and we go, oh, I like that person. They're interesting. When we're using dating apps, we're consistently on a daily level for sometimes, you know, 10, maybe other people are on it for 15 minutes. So imagine that you're specifically training your brain to see people as a commodity. I don't like them because they can't give me this. Maybe they can give me this. They can, maybe they can, maybe they can, you know, oh, their looks, I can get something out of that. Maybe I can get pleasure from her or him. Maybe I can't. And it's it's training your brain to see people as products. So you're not seeing them <clears throat> as an individual, as a soul, as a human, as, as a, a beautiful, vibrant, changing, you know, adaptation of, of conscious nature. You're just seeing them as, oh, product of relationship, product of sex, product of my own pleasure, yes or no. And that's it. And so it, it's over time it starts that starts coming out of the app and into your daily life. So it's almost like you're you're kind of it's taking this commoditized viewing out of a program and bringing it into waking life, which can be really unhealthy uh, to be going out about your daily life, judging everyone on that basis. It's a very unconscious and, you know, very selfish foundation to, to allow your mind to fall into. You know, uh, we obviously see commodities as commodities because that's what they are. We treat everything like that. We're on Amazon all the time trying to figure out, do I want this shoe or these shoes or this toothbrush or this soap? But it's different when it comes to living organisms. You know, that that is a, a really hard barrier to pass once we start setting that line of thinking into the mind or allowing it to resonate or become a reality to us where we always see people that way. And that's a big problem to start off is it, again, commoditizes everyone instead of just certain people we're attracted to uh, in waking life, I guess you'd say naturally. But the second problem and the reason that I especially had to stop using it is because it... It basically solidifies a thought in the mind that makes you think I am incomplete where I am now. I don't have enough where I am now. I am partially empty. A big thing about spiritual practice is that you have to come to understand your wholeness, your divinity, your fullness as you are right now. The divine that is in you is in everyone. And unless you feel completely comfortable alone where you are, you're always going to be living in a codependent style, whether that's with, a parent or a friend or a relationship, you're going to be needing them or clinging to them or longing for them or jealous or worried, all these different toxic emotions that hold you down. They're going to continue coming up because you feel as if you're not enough as you are. And so if you're not at the point where you can sit back and go, I love where I am, I'm totally good being single. I'm okay where I am. If you can't do that, you're going to have a lot of problems. And so a lot of people aren't okay by themselves. And that's natural. We we see and we're taught all the time, especially with social media, about all these celebrity relationships and these beautiful couples on Instagram that are always together. And so a lot of people think that they need that that they have to have that. And so when you download an app like that, again, you're spending 10 to maybe 50 minutes a day looking at all these potentials and thinking, oh, I don't have that yet. You know, oh, here's – they might complete me. They might complete me. Oh, what if I got, What if I was with them? What if that was my life? What, oh, what a dream. And then it doesn't pan out. And when those conversations fizzle out or the date doesn't go well, it drops you farther into your incompleteness because you're meeting and talking to briefly all these potential partners or potential completions to your life or potential puzzle pieces uh, to fill you. And that's the thing that, again, it, it takes a long time to break out of that thought process if you let it become a normality in your life. So by utilizing these apps, we're not just starting to see people uh, from, a, from a very egotistical, selfish perspective as commodities, but we're also starting to see ourselves as not enough how we are. And so it doesn't matter how much you practice spiritually or how much self-work you do. If you're going home and using these apps, you're still going to feel empty and you're still going to see people uh, in, a, in a selfish light of what I can personally gain, not of what I can give or what I can team up to do. And so you can't, you can't find productive independence in these places it just does not work it creates codependency that's why they exist is because they bring codependence together so that they can have something and the more you use it even if you are independent the more you use these apps the more it brings you out of independency and kind of retrains your brain to, to be codependent because it wants you to use these apps they don't exist because they're not addictive they exist and they're so big because using them is addictive and because it retrains the brain in that way
0: yeah it's like really it muddies the water a lot too when you get these shots of dopamine and serotonin every time you pop open something and you see the likes or you see the messages or whatever yep. it maybe it's like it's a positive reinforcement to an addictive tendency that's not, overall not healthy i love yep. that you address the fact that it's it's like so contradictory to to think you're whole or to be claiming yourself as whole, but then to also seek external validation yep. and to, to get that from you know these apps and, and whatnot um, uh, I, I'm actually, I've been with my wife now for almost well, 11 years, almost 12 years now. And, um, it's interesting because you even mentioned the, the wholeness aspect. And sometimes I even being in a relationship, I have to check myself because like, if I'm out, I have a tendency to get angry. So that's like one thing yeah. that I'd be very mindful of. Like I get, I get triggered very easily and I yeah. just get frustrated with society, but uh, you know, as many people do. But when I'm out, I almost feel like sometimes I I want to have my wife with me because then I want to say, oh, she makes me less angry. Yeah. When I even do that, I'm claiming I'm not whole, right? Because I'm saying that I need this ear to keep me in a, in a balanced, harmonious state. So it can it can happen in all sorts of ways. Whether you're single, whether you're in a relationship, it all just comes down to viewing yourself as total, complete, and whole, and then and then resting in that. And I think if you have that foundation then i think it's healthy to go and use apps and whatnot just to meet people but as long as there's that foundation of wholeness that you experience within yourself um it, it would, would you agree with that
1: to, to which aspect
0: well basically as long as you have a foundation of feeling whole and and comfortable in your own skin
1: yeah
0: and kind of like you, what you were saying you're like i'm here i'm happy you know i'm i'm i, I always like to think that the default human state is one of bliss and, 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 joy and love and everything That's outside cool. of that is just really delusion and confusion and you know it, it doesn't so I guess I'm I'm asking if someone is does so much inner work that they I'm trying to think like there's a great aspect of these apps and technologies because you can meet people kind of like what you were saying earlier I think you meet right so I'm just okay. wondering what's the healthy way to use these things even social media like we, we initially spoke on social media and now we're having this conversation so this is very healthy right I, I would say so yeah. Um, but you can you can go down another route right, where I could have gone to your profile, look at your things and be like, oh, look at this spiritual yeah. something. I hate this guy, right? And yeah. sometimes the mind will do that and play these games on you. So there's, a, there's always the negative side of social media, but there's the positive as well. I guess I'm asking, like, from your experience, because you're very immersed in social media, do you yeah. find that having this base of feeling whole or this inner work that you do, gives you a good groundedness to work from so that you can at least start to use these technologies in a more healthy way, more balanced
1: way. Definitely. definitely. I get get what you're saying. I think the difference though is I totally agree. And that's why I tell people, you know, it's it's, it's difficult to, to blend social media and spiritual self and to have that wholeness without it. And if you don't feel as if you're whole using these social apps, you should work on that first. I think the difference though with things like dating apps compared to just being on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook is that the the, the foundation so like the foundation of say twitter or instagram uh is interactions right that you interact consistently but there's no kind of expected interaction there's no expectations placed upon that you can meet friends and have random conversations and have a discourse or have an argument those exist over all these different apps because there's tons of different topics and tons of different things always happening on them the problem with things like dating apps is that they're expectational. So they're they're conditioned. You basically go on the app with an expectation of, I want this and I want you to give me this. And since you're here, you probably want this and you want me to give you this. And so it creates what I consider, that's a very unhealthy dynamic to have is it's an expectation before ever meeting. So it's basically, you're going into this with an idea of what you're expecting to get and treating these people and seeing yourself based on these lights versus when you use kind of regular social media, I guess, are ones that aren't placed on exact specifications of expectations. Uh, When you're on like Twitter or Instagram, you can just have these conversations and you can meet people organically, you know, Twitter, Twitter, Instagram are kind of like, Being at the bar, being at a club or being at uh, an event or a conscious event or a meditation meetup in in real life. It's kind of like, oh, here's a group of people in a certain realm. Cool, I, I meet you, we talk, we become friends or we end up going on a date or something. It happens more naturally dating apps are kind of more like speed dating. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, we're both here because we really want to have a relationship or we want to have sex or we want to feel validated or complete. Uh, make it work. And if you can't, you get upset, right? You get frustrated. And if you can, then great. And it lasts for a while, but maybe it doesn't last forever. So there's a different approach going on because of the expectational basis. And that's why I think it's, it's healthier to just utilize the apps where there is no foundational expectation. There's tons of different things going on in a social sense, almost like a watering hole. for for any potential on these uh, mainstream apps versus dating apps where it's very limited. It has a specific reason, a specific point, and a specific expectation attached to it. Mm -hmm. I think you can definitely, you can be in a spiritual path using these apps, but I think you can very easily be pulled out of your practice and pulled out of your own completeness really quick because of the, the ego hits your, your body and mind can take being on these apps. Like you said, getting those notifications, oh they like me, and then it doesn't go anywhere. They don't reply. Oh, they don't like me. You know, it's, it's a very high, it's a very high and low, very high, not high vibration, but very uh, fluctuating experience for the emotions. And that's not always really healthy to have that consistently in your face, you know, for, for 20 plus minutes a day.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah i'd imagine it would start to really sap your energy i'd imagine you would have nothing left at the end of the day for your own like long-term personal gain you know yeah. either the projects you're working on or inner work you're doing like anything like that they'd yeah. all be gone so do you have um, any meditative practice that you perform on a day-to-day basis or you know weekly whatever it may be if you do retreats or yoga yeah,
1: yeah i have my uh i'm oh, sorry my screen shut off for a second Can you still see me
0: uh yep.
1: Yeah. Okay, cool. Let me let my dog out for one sec. She's waiting by the door. Yeah. I do meditation every morning. Uh mainly it's just I, I do a mixture of Japa meditation or, or mala meditations, I guess you'd say, on my Japa beads. Mm-hmm. Uh which is chanting a mantra that allows your mind to drop into a singular point of focus or dharana. <laughs> like, sutras. I do that, and I do a lot of insight meditation, which is either – it's essentially
0: – Oh, sorry. The, the audio is a little bit low. Oh, can you hear me now? Uh, I can hear you a little bit better.
1: Let's see. Let's see if it works now. Is that better?
0: Uh, yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay, cool. Sorry about that. I don't know why I screwed it on. All right. But yeah i do uh Joppa meditations on my beads and then uh insight meditation which is essentially the negation of the material self or i guess of the the defined self the limited self it, it's it's stripping away all the potentials that are limited until all that remains is the infinite truth of what you are uh, of what being is uh so to speak it's it's a non-dual practice which is the tradition i practice in is non-duality uh advaita vedanta as it's called in uh in uh, sanskrit and hindi so that's mainly the two practices i do the most and then at night i do a lot of just pure silence and i drop into a space of thoughtlessness or i allow myself to see if i can flow into that space but in the mornings i like to treat it kind of as like a mental workout so at night it's a very relaxed relaxing thing i'm not trying to do anything i'm just allowing myself to be in pure presence But in the mornings, I try to treat it as a a mental meditation, as a practice. So I do my rounds, and I'll do my insight, and I'll ask these questions, and I'll postulate to myself, and I'll negate, as they call it, or name and form, and try to kind of erase that slowly until I can work back to my source and really kind of feel it. And then that allows me to kind of go out into my day with a a good foundation uh, set behind it.
0: Mm -hmm. And how long does that typically take you? I'm going to ask you a bit more about this. And I actually was just speaking with someone. I had a podcast earlier today. And I was talking about one of my meditative practices where I'll do it in the morning and I'll be in the shower, head down, I'm completely bowed down. And it is very similar to what you described there. I, I feel uh, I can get to a point of a complete dissolving of self. Yeah. Um, and it's only, I, I always have this visualization of a doorway or a passageway that I have to cross through this beyond this barrier to be greeted by this, this higher uh, energy, let's call it. Uh, I need to say higher self I'm not really a fan of that phrase but I always feel like this this energy is just radiant love and it completely dissolves everything I've come to know of myself as the self you know like everything is just completely gone in some cases all that's really left is just this center beating heart which is also in resonance with that that radiant energy that's coming towards me so it's like they, they come together in union and it's like, this is all that's left in truth, you know, everything else, all the external things, all the thoughts that cross me in the 15 minute, minutes leading up to that uh, sort of transcendental state, it's like all those things are just washed away, completely gone. So um, it's really cool that you, you, it sounds like you have a similar type of practice. Do yeah, you ta- reach that state every day or do you find that like some days you don't quite get there, but you know, you still feel elated in, in any anyway.
1: Yeah. So someday every day is different. And that's why I love meditation is it's not some consistent thing. It's it's very dependent on like you can, for some reason, you, you know, you some days you can wake up and drop right into it. Other days you wake up and you, you can't. And that's why it's so good is it helps you kind of work with whatever's going on subconsciously or unconsciously that you don't really have a, a hold on that. You can't really see just yet. Uh, it depends on the day you know it's 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 pretty easy when the more you do it it's kind of like a workout you know at first maybe you start working out and you can't curl a 30 pound dumbbell but then you know, after a few months it's, it's really easy to do it it's not mm-hmm. to think about it so it's it, it, the easier you, the more you do it the easier it gets the more it becomes a natural state of continuing to go through the motions the big thing you have to watch out for and that i have to remind myself of is not just walking through the motions of like yeah i'm everything you know and you're like oh, i'm one with everything and Do I really feel that? Do I know that experientially? Am I getting there or am I just kind of skipping through this meditation and rushing through it and not really working my way to it? So it's almost a practice that meditation can sometimes be a practice of my own patience to allow myself to really work there because when the the barricades come up, uh, I try to really make sure that I work through it versus just saying, Oh yeah, no, I'm not that. You know, I have to, I want to feel that I know I'm not that I un- understand it conceptually so I can continue to move forward. And I think that's a hard thing for a lot of us is uh, when we get into any kind of practice, we get familiar with it. And that, when we get familiar, we get a little bit lazy and when we get lazy, we start to lose the progress we were making beforehand. We don't mm-hmm. really take it as seriously.
0: Yeah, uh, so I'm not right.
1: What was that? It's like the magic
0: of it seems to have dissipated because you're just getting through it like mechanically, right?
1: Well, there's a term in psychology called a hedonic adaptation. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it pretty much means that no matter how bad or how good things get, any practice we do, no matter how great it is or how horrible it is, eventually we the body-mind complex reaches a state of, of, of stasis, of equilibrium. So this is why... People who, you know, people that can be extremely poor have the same kind of natural level of day-to-day contentment as billionaires in their private jets. You know, being in a, being a private jet your first time is a mind-blowing experience. But when you're taking a private jet every single day across the country, it becomes very mundane. You feel the same way that somebody in a, in a broken-down civic feels being stuck on the 405 going to work. And that, that's just how the mind works. And we get caught in that. We get lost in it. So any practice can, you can fall into that, whether it be yoga or meditation or again personal insights, you can fall into a place of just oh complacency and not thinking about it and not honoring it and not realizing or having gratitude for the practice. So that's why it's really important to be continuously aware if you're doing this. You know, to, to be mindful enough to ask yourself, am I just going through the motions or am I actually going into this practice? Because if we don't ask ourselves that, we can get lost in it really easily.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a great way to describe it. Um, I like your, your analogy there of the, uh, the billionaire and the flame and everything too. It almost works the same for social media. Like when I first, and you probably experienced the same when you first start a YouTube channel or an Instagram account, you get like five likes, 10 likes, whatever maybe. be. But all of a sudden you're just like desensitized with like hundreds or thousands of likes and comments to the point where it's just like, whoa. And if you were to ask someone that is not that active on social media, like they probably are experiencing those five, ten likes and if they were to receive that, just like, I'm sure if you post something, it's like your phone almost like overheats sometimes, right? Like just the amount of engagements you can get. And uh, it's almost like completely desensitizing, just similar to like a millionaire or a billionaire versus someone in their Honda. Cause I remember when I had a a, a smaller following, I used to think, Oh, well, when I get a, you know, that bigger following, it's, it's always wanting more, right? It's always trying to crave more. And even when it comes to the meditation, like, you could start to think that what you were doing is no longer working, but it's not. You're just not putting yourself into it. So, exactly. you know, because I, I, I get a lot of people that ask, like, how do I start meditating and this and that? And I love that you said it's like lifting up a weight and just practicing and training. But it's not something that you're just going to be like Buddhist monk day one. You know, yeah. like, this shit takes. Like decades, years. Like uh, I, I've uh, interviewed here Lama Surya Das as well. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. It. I love Lama Surya das. And and uh, I I think he's absolutely amazing. Extremely insightful. Uh, I've even spoken with Ram Das as well. Um, it's funny yeah. I didn't I didn't record that one. Uh, I mean,
1: didn't record mine with him either. It was at the uh, retreat, but.
0: Uh, uh, you know what? it would have been dead air the whole time i was just smiling at him like just for like an hour and a half or just smiling enjoying each other's presence you know um yes. and his obviously a speech impediment yeah. <laughs> since a stroke but um these are these are like really great teachers and i and I, that's actually why i originally reached out to you too because i saw that you had spoken with um I don't know if it was Ramdas or Raghu Marcus or some, one of those guys.
1: Yeah, I um, I, I did a video with Ragu and with Rameshwar Das, uh, who okay. had Ram Das write uh, be love now.
0: Be love now. Perfect, yeah. Very cool. Um but it's
1: definitely true, you know, we, we can really easily get we get lost in, in what we have because we don't practice gratitude, right? We're not present enough to see the beauty of what is, and so the ego mind takes over and starts to judge it again. You know, I noticed that's why people don't understand when they, it's, it's one of those things that you can't understand until you're in the midst of it, which a lot of us are unconsciously is, you know, how can this person have millions of followers and millions of dollars and hate their life? Well, it's because they're not being mindful of what is going on around them the same way that the same way that millionaires hate their life is the same way that, People that are in poverty hit their life. They're not satisfied with what's going on around them. They want more. They want change. They want difference. They want this, that that thing that's just outside their reach. Everyone seeks that when we're not being mindful, we're not being grateful for what's right here. You know, I noticed that too with myself, As like you said, the more you create content, the more your channels grow and the more you go, oh, but when I get to this many followers or when my videos and my podcasts start getting that many views, then I'll be set. And then you hit that point and you go, oh, but what about when they get this many? What if they even double that? I got to a point like a year and a half ago where, you know, I would get I would get mad that it, I, remember, I remember when I first started making videos that I, it blew my mind when my first video got a thousand views, you know, when I had a video got, that got, you know, 5,000 views in a day, it was like, it was the craziest thing ever. It was the most amazing thing. And then I got to a point a few months ago where I would get upset if the first day my videos didn't get... 10 to 20 views, 10 to 20,000. And I had to stop and be like, what are you doing? You're being ridiculous. You know, that, that's more views than I could have ever thought of in my, in my life that people would be tuning into this kind of content. That's mind blowing. And so I had to kind of return to my roots and really meditate on that as, you know, of being grateful for every single view. I don't care if a video gets five views or if it gets 500,000 there, it's just as important. And it's not worth any less. And I'm not worth any less because of these 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 material expectations and these little linguistic terms I'm attaching my meaning to, so it, it's a good reminder to be in mindfulness and to practice that and to realize when you're getting caught up in, in these roles and in these uh these titles and in these little non sequiturs.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you're so aware of that because um, it is something you can really get caught in. Like, the yep. I've caught myself several times. Like, it's like sometimes a daily thing. It's very quick thought. You know, like the ego's thought is so quick. Like, oh, I didn't get the views. Like it right away. It's like ah, I didn't get that, you know. So yeah, yeah. Um. So have you had any psychedelic experiences, either going on retreats and doing like ayahuasca or you know magic mushrooms? I mean, I'm specifically I'm interested in magic mushrooms. If you've done those, because now they're coming to light as being like therapeutic, more so, and decriminalized in a lot of places.
1: Yeah, Den Denver and Oakland just decriminalized uh, psilocybin completely, which is great. I'm going to Denver actually in uh, a few weeks part of my tour so we'll see what goes on there but uh, I was actually sober for five years until uh the beginning of 2019 this past year and since then I've before that you know when I was in high school and stuff I I partook in mushrooms and LSD and uh you know 25I and 25C and these chemical compounds and, and but I didn't use them consciously they had really profound effects but I wasn't going into them with like oh I'm gonna I'm gonna dive into this and meditate and have insightful experiences. It was more like, I'm going to take psychedelics, you know, it was a very unconscious approach to it. So in my mind, while I was sober, actually, I kind of built up this, this unconscious resistance because I was in a natural state of practice for so long. You know, I was, I was wanting to really dive into my practice without any, uh, I guess, I wouldn't say um, veils, but without any uh, transformers is how I would explain it. Like things that Change my perception. I wanted, I wanted to go where I could naturally and see what I could discover in meditation and in my own insights, my own practice naturally. And after a few years doing that, I realized I had, I wanted to go back to, again, now that I've gotten to a place, place where I feel like I'm, I'm doing a lot of growth and change, let's see what I can learn from these teachers, from these compounds. And so I got back into uh, taking LSD a few times. And then I went to uh, Australia in February, and March. And I stayed on a on a farm in an eco village in Australia in February, and they have ahimsa cows all over the place. So it's it's a it's a Krishna village. It's a Hindu kind of temple and village, and all the cows there are nonviolent cows. They don't kill the cows. They don't slaughter them. They don't eat any meat. All they do is uh, milk them when their children are ready, and that's pretty much it. They use the milk for a uh, prasadam, so for like a holy food for the gods and the deities. But other than that, the cows uh, get free roam, they eat organic food all day long so that they're as happy as a a cow could possibly be and on these farms psilocybin mushrooms grew in the thousands so in every cow pie there were 10 to 20 different psilocybin mushrooms they're called they're called blue meanies in uh, australia but so i spent about a month month or so taking uh anywhere from one to three grams of magic mushrooms every other day and uh Going about my meditative practice going to temple going to uh classes being part of this community doing kirtan doing meditation uh, and being with myself and working with them and it was one of the most you know profound months of my life so far to really rebuild this connection with these psychedelic teachers and that's what i saw them as and that that's what i realized when i went into it with pure intentions when i cleared my mind of any expectations from these mushrooms that they literally are just teachers they're teachers on a different paradigm that we don't really understand consciously yet they talk to you they they provide you with information they open gateways to your own mind and heart that i never had the potential to open in you know five years of natural practice which is fine you you get different insights and different lessons from different places and different things and that was a big big experience and an important experience for me was realizing you know how much uh these these mushrooms have to offer how much good they can do and how much they can help you when they're done with pure intentions and with conscious ability, when you know your dosage, especially. So it, it was really great to have that experience and to be able to see the, the teachings that lie in these natural compounds that grow in the ground. It was, it was magical.
0: Mm-hmm. And I want to get your thoughts on, on a, an idea, or kind of like a like, thought of experiment. But I'm sure you're familiar with a lot of re- religious symbology and they have these halos above their people's heads. Yeah. And they almost look like mushrooms. Yeah. I actually asked a professor that studies and researches psilocybin and whatnot, and he wasn't really able to speculate much because he's like a scientist professor, not like a spiritual type of dude. He's like, well, I don't know about all that stuff. (laughs) So I wanted to get your thought on it. Like, do you think that they have so much, uh, I guess, heritage in, in in our human civilization that they are depicted in a lot of artwork because they just are that powerful and that transformative for people?
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely possible. I would even go to say that maybe they 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 draw those as kind of representation of of like the auras that come off of you. Oh, okay. when, you're on, when you're on psychedelics, you can kind of you can't like it. Will depend. Some people can, but for myself, it's kind I've of almost seen crazy like,
0: auras. Just to, yeah. just to, I've seen insane auras come off people. Yeah, you
1: recognize this this like this energetic kind of spectrum around people and around things, and that's what you know. what's known in Hinduism as like the gunas, the, 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 qualities of, of matter and energy is, uh, Ramas, Thomas, Rajas, tamas, and Sattva. And Sattva is the purest. And so that's why, you know, when you go into, uh, a dirty bathroom, you feel like, you know, Tamasic energy, negative energy. But when you go into like a temple or a yoga studio or any like your, 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 your space at home, your room, you feel, ah, that kind of sattvic energy. And so I think mushrooms especially kind of show that sattvic energy kind of coming off of people and things and that, that purity that resides around us if we, we tap into it. But a big thing that we speculated uh, at this, because um, I had a, I was there with lots of people too, and we all had you know deep mushroom conversations about all these different philosophies and potentials. And in India, uh, the cow, is worshipped very heavily. So the cow is the most divine animal that can exist in India. You know, in northern India especially, pretty much there's, I think, a billion-plus people are vegetarian uh, because they don't eat meat. They don't eat cows. You know, when you're in northern India, uh, you, you cannot – if you kill a cow, they'll kill you. You know, that's how sacred the cow is, is that you don't mess with the cow. If there's traffic and the cow's in the way, you maybe try to shush it out of the way, but you don't try to push it or hit it. You just let them do their thing. And so I think that where that might've started thousands of years ago, uh, is because there, there's a specific in, in the, in the ancient Hindu texts in the Mahabharata, there's a specific, uh, I forget the word, but it's like, it was like a magical elixir that, that like gave people these spiritual insights and powers. And I'm pretty sure it was mushrooms that they ground into a drink, but that was kind of where the cow became originally, uh, a very spiritual symbol. You know, even Shiva, Shiva's bull is called Nandi and Nandi is basically the the Vahana or the vehicle that Shiva rides into battle. It carries him. It's a bull and it's it's sacred because of that. And I think one of the reasons is because these mushrooms grow in cow pies, because for some reason, the contents of the cow's two stomachs creates the perfect kind of environment for those uh, those spores to fall into and process through and grow out of in these cow pies. So you can imagine, imagine th- thousands of years ago, being you know in the hills of India and these beautiful majestic animals. For some reason, their dung creates the most transformative psychedelic medicine of all time. You know, I would worship the cows if I discovered that. I wa- I, I worshipped the cows when I was at the temple because I'd wake up every day and there'd be new mushrooms out of their cow pies. You know, why wouldn't you? That's beautiful. They're, they're creating a conduit for you to access this consciousness or God, if you want to call it that, uh, in a new light, just by virtue of their their physical manifestation. So I think that's originally where one of our uh, hypothesis was that maybe that's why they were, my bad.
0: That's all good. So I think you, you left off with, uh, with the cows and whatnot. So I actually did have a question about that. So I noticed, I saw you posted a video where you were feeding a cow like um, carrots or something like that, right? Um, so do you find, well, first of all, did you grow up in an environment where you were like around nature, around animals? Are you in like a typical city type of environment like a lot of people? That's part one of my question. The second one is, do you find a lot of benefit in getting out in in the forest, in nature? Um, And and this is actually becoming a lot more popular now, like forest bathing, nature bathing. There's been some studies around it um, that it can actually help alleviate a lot of depression. So the first part is, did you grow up in that type of environment? And the second part is, did you find yourself being called or drawn more into that environment as time Mm. went on?
1: Yeah, uh, I didn't grow up around nature, really. I grew up in kind of like small cities, mainly. I mean, uh, when I was really little, I grew up kind of on near my grandfather's farm in Indiana, but I was too little to really understand what was going on. Uh, I traveled a lot growing up during the summers and stuff, but I was young. So, you know, I was very into video games and being on like my Game Boy and stuff. So we, I, I, kind of, I, it's, I don't regret it now because I'll be able to visit all these places again as an adult. But when I was young, you know, we go to all these different great places around the U.S. and I'd just stay in the camper and like play Pokemon or I'd have like my Digimon cards and different stuff. I just I just wouldn't be aware of what was going on. I didn't have a major draw to it. And yeah, growing up, I was just really living in these small towns, you know, uh, these these how do I explain it? Just these these it's a very American thing, you know, to have these kind of four cornered gridded layouts of cities that are built around their CVS's and Walgreens and their, their strip malls and they're all community living and all the houses are the same. That's kind of where I grew up. A very, a very uh, artificial place, you know, where everything is the same. When you go into all your friends live in one of like six communities and you go into the communities and like I said, every house is the same. So there wasn't really any connection to nature besides my dogs and, and my cats and uh, the random birds and animals you'd see. Uh, around you every once in a while so I never really had a deep connection or or access to it but the more I've gotten older the more I've realized how much I love nature and being out in the woods and uh, I mean at this point right now I was just traveling for six plus months overseas and I definitely agree I think being in nature absolutely is one of the most healing healing properties we have available to us on a natural level it is absolutely transcendental how powerful it can it can be for our mental health and our awareness you know there, there's so many different factors that it could be a whole discussion in its own right. You know, how we are affected by the cities we live in or the societies we live in, whether it be artificial light or Wi-Fi or microwaves or, or 4G cell phones and all these different things that c- consistently bombard and convolute us, all these, the noise of cars and of machinery and all this stuff going on. And when, when you get back to the natural way of things, I don't mean like going and living in the cave, but I mean, when you're out in nature and you're around, you're around running creeks and, and water and animals and and brush and with the trees and listening to things naturally just being in a space where everything flows in harmony versus being so very aggressively interactive uh you you feel it right away you feel it instantly the moment you get into it i don't think there's a single person who who can be standing in front of you know a beautiful waterfall or next to a running creek and is just like ugh ew gross you know it's mainly when people are in those spaces and they don't like it it's usually because of a program position like oh i don't want to get sweaty or uh i don't want to like mess up my makeup or i don't i don't want to like i don't want to crinkle the the crease in my shoe or something it's a very programmed thought process but naturally everyone loves being in nature you know that's why people tour and travel the world is they want to see different natural wonders and different beautiful things in a lot of cases Mm -hmm. uh so i think you know Nature is an extremely healing property, and that's, that's really how I felt in Australia, too, As I spent a lot of time you know, in this eco-community where we would all go and skinny dip in these beautiful giant rivers and jump off of, of, of a rock waterfalls into these lakes and just hang out and sunbathe and talk for hours. And it was a very natural way of living that felt so transcendental and so much more grounded in reality than any other form of relationship or friendship I've ever cultivated uh, on, on a material level where all you do is all these different material activities and you're, you're constantly judging and, and trying to prove yourself or validate yourself. The more you are in nature, especially with people, the more you act naturally, and the less the ego tends to have to try to prove itself or make itself known as some independent, important figure, which is what we're taught in the material world. Uh, so yeah, I, re- I really love nature and being around nature and especially being around animals. You know, I've been vegan for uh, three and a half years. So I'm very, in my own personal life, I feel connected with animals and I love being around them and feeding them and and just watching them and witnessing. You know, where I live in Montana right now, uh, there are deer everywhere. So they come in our backyard and you can sit there and watch the deer and, you know, they'll come up and eat corn off the ground and stuff. And it's just beautiful to watch nature play naturally versus, uh, I guess, being locked away from it and not having access to that.
0: Mm -hmm. yeah i I mean i have some buddies that like i'll I'll invite them out to go on nature treks and trails and whatnot but they give me kind of similar excuses you just kind of mentioned a second ago like oh there's bugs oh there's too much sun it's like i don't understand what you think nature is like there's bugs there's sun there's dirt like like i don't know it's like the they've built up the artificial so much so that they think like that's the new reality um and then anything outside of that is just obscure and, and weird to them. So but these are the same people that I know that have issues with depression. So it's like, you know, it's just a tricky thing to try to convince someone. It's like you as a child or as a teenager, whatever it may be, playing your video game, like how do you get in there and say, hey, like knock the kid on the head and be like, get your ass outside. You know, like what what do you really do to and and that's why I think these conversations are important because I certainly hope anyone listened would have would have just understood the importance based on what you just described of actually getting out and going into nature so I, I think these conversations are great for that um but just just random like question what, what would you have said to in your state now if you were back to that teenager playing the game what would you say to get him up and out and i know how kids are like, yeah, they don't yeah. ignore you but i mean what would you say to get him up and out the door
1: you know it can be hard sometimes you know we have a lot of resistance that we're, we're taught and we're built into but i think a big thing is just allowing it's helping people realize, a big thing for me, you realize the more you do it, how fun it is. Like you said, oh, there's sweat and there's bugs. People don't realize how fun it is once you break through the mold of having to be a certain way or keep up an appearance, how fun it is to get down and dirty and be in nature. Like it's fun as hell to sweat and be covered in dirt and to be, you know, trekking through mud. And it sounds like, some people I think that sounds gross or, oh, I don't want to do that. It's like, you don't know because you haven't done it. If you go do it and you let go of all these, these walls you have to put up, you realize how liberating and how fun it feels, how enjoyable it is to go barefoot through these waterfalls and run through and like smear mud on your face and like hang out in these rivers. It's, it's, it's awesome. It's a very natural thing. To want to be part of the land and to integrate with it. Uh, I think for me a big thing was that you have to show them that they can enjoy it with someone else too. You can't just be kind of like go enjoy nature you know. Yeah. If you just go to a 15 year old kid who's on his his xbox or something who's interacting with other people and having a good time and tell him, hey you go go have fun by yourself. It's like what am I going to do you know. So a big thing is having the ability to do with others. I think that's a really helpful thing. Yeah, I think that's a big thing for me too. Is I, had a, I have a sister but we weren't, really, we weren't really friends when we were growing up. We were kind of like sibling rivalries so we didn't ever go do activities together. Uh, but I think definitely I would have gotten out of it differently if I had a brother or something where we were always going out and going on adventures together. So it just depends on how you're raised and who you have around you to experience it with. But it definitely becomes a lot easier and a lot more enjoyable when you have more people to, to do it with. You know, happiness, as a Christopher McCandless said, happiness is only real when shared. And that, that applies to nature too. If you really want to enjoy it, you have to be able to enjoy it with others. And that really makes it very easy to see how, how enjoyable and
0: how uh, entertaining it can be. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like turn it into some kind of game or have some sort of activity that you can do rather than just like go out and stare at a tree type of thing.
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I, also I, I don't judge people who, I mean, there's it's not saying that you can't, I, I have an Xbox as well. I like to play video games sometimes. I play Forza sometimes. It, it's fun. You can have both. You can enjoy both. It's just not saying I, I don't like that ever. I won't even give it a chance. It's about finding a balance really, you know? finding a balance and finding fun because there's so much to life. You don't have to limit yourself to any one way of being or any one way of enjoyment. That's how I, that's what I learned, especially now that I've been out and traveling is you can find tens, if not hundreds of ways to consistently enjoy life, whether it means being indoors or outdoors, there's so many different options. And it's all just about not, not saying no before you try it, right? Don't knock it before you try it. That's a big thing.
0: Yeah, there's a whole, like, theory around, like, the yes theory, just, like, to, just to do, right, and experience things, and then make your decision after that, perhaps.
1: Have you seen uh, Yes Man by Jim Jim Carrey? Yes, I did see that
0: movie, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. That movie was a really big inspiration for me when I was traveling. It was one of the last movies I watched before I got on a plane to travel for six months, and I made it part of my goal was, like, I'm going to say yes to everything, no matter what it is. You know, it's really easy to, when you're comfortable and you're inside and you're, you're warm and you're chilling, it's easy to be like, no, no, thank you. But you don't know what you're missing out on, you know. Right. You already know what you're going to get by saying no. Why don't you go discover what you might be able to have fun with and try uh, by saying yes. So that was big for me was just say yes to life. Go experience things. Go try things. Get out of your comfort zone and, and see what see what you discover.
0: Yeah, I think there's great benefit, like lur- like lurking and waiting there once you do it. Like even this yeah. conversation we're having, you said yes to us speaking. And in doing so, who knows how many lives are going to be affected by the conversation. Yes. Like you, you'll never, the mind thinks it can understand all possibilities and variances, but it can't, it can, it can barely grasp up 1% fraction of what's going to come of you saying yes. yes. So the whole point of it is just to do it and then be completely open to that 99% that your mind could not even contemplate.
1: The best so. things in life, the biggest memories you have, the moments you'll, you'll, keep with you forever are the ones that happen outside of the plans you make. That's the biggest thing I learned from traveling is that all the most memorable things that happened to me over the past few months were things that at no point could I ever have written down or planned. This is what I'm going to do to have this memory. It happened because I said yes. And because I put myself out there and went and had fun. And these, these random, crazy, life-changing, one-of-a-kind experiences just happened by virtue of being out in the world and experiencing and that is
0: something that sticks with you for life and that you appreciate forever. Mm-hmm. And uh, getting back to actually what you said at the beginning of our conversation where you had friends that have passed away or had died, yeah. um, there was actually someone else I was speaking to and he has a podcast as well, the Inner Monologue Podcast. Mm-hmm. And this person, uh, his name is Thomas Brown, he started his podcast because his brother committed suicide. Yeah. And he was feeling extremely depressed and this and that, and to, to combat this depression he was feeling. he basically said yes, got on a bicycle and crossed the like rode across the entire United States. Yeah. He was doing speakings at like different states and talking to people about his experience. And it's like that little shift that he and now he has a podcast where he interviews people and you know he's just helping people. So it's crazy that you can go from being like, oh your brother killed himself, he died, you're completely depressed, you're in a room, you don't know what to do, but you just you just take that step and you just say, yes, you get on a bike and you just go try. And now his life has completely changed. Like it's not a completely different direction than it may have gone prior to that. So I think it's, it's really important, especially now for, for a lot of the, the teenagers and the kids growing up in, in this current, current day and age, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but like ASMR videos have become so popular now because like all people, they're not going out and experiencing the world and textures and sounds. Yeah, exactly, they're getting it from- They're up. basically just like, let me get this screen here and simulate the whole, yeah. the whole thing. It's very strange and it's, it's blowing up in popularity. And I think it's because like people yearn to have this experience, this outward experience, but it, I don't know if it's fear, like what do you think it is that holds it them is. back from doing that? It's
1: very, it's very fear-based people especially as someone who teaches and I, I, I do private sessions with clients a lot too. It's, it is once you get into really real, I mean, it's different for what like you're creating a podcast. Once you start making something and realizing you can do all these different things, it blows the floodgates open before you do that. It's in, it's really interesting how many people completely don't believe they can achieve or do anything as they are. And they don't realize that everyone else who's ever achieved or created or done anything anything, has done it as they are. People highly underestimate their potential and their abilities to enjoy life, to find things they enjoy, to have fun, to experience, to create, to do anything really. We've really been taught to not step out of the box or take chances or just enjoy what you have, you know. Versus going out and discovering and putting yourself out there. And I think that's, that's one of the things where, you know, technology is great, but also like you said, it it confines you to what matters and what's important as this, as this little box and that anything you need will be right here. And it's like, yeah, a lot of stuff is right here, but there's also an entire planet outside of the room you're in or outside of that screen that has infinitely more potentials for you to access as well. And it's just about, it all comes down to, I think, right now, in this day and age, instant gratification. That's the problem, is that I can get a little bit of enjoyment right away from this phone, but do I really want to put in the effort to go hike or to go put my shoes on and drive 30 minutes or, you know, all these things that are totally normal to the generation before us, for us, is a completely new thing because we have an option of why not to do that. Before it was like, well, obviously you're going to go do that because if not, you're going to either stay home and twiddle your thumbs. If, if you don't, now we have an actual outlet that gives us an excuse not to go out and experience or to create or innovate or to enjoy. So that's the big difference is we have, there's an excuse in front of us. And while it does, like I said, I, I, I use my phone a lot. I create on social media. There's great things there, but that doesn't mean you should let it control any, any other aspect of your life. It doesn't mean it should shut you off from going out and enjoying the world or making the most of life. Uh, in any way you can.
0: Mm-hmm. Well said. And so do you host like retreats where you actually get groups together and you do like workshop type stuff? Yeah. Okay. Um, low-
1: I just started. So I'm hosting my first major seven-day retreat uh, this October in Goa, India. So if anyone wants that information, it's on my website, vashuddadas.com. Uh, I'll be hosting my first retreat there. I, it's almost sold out. I think we have four spots left, three spots left. Uh, so it's pretty much almost there uh i'm also doing right now a uh tour in the west coast for july and august so i'll be on the awaken today tour it's a kind of workshop master class i'm hosting for two to three hours in, in like six different cities and again that's on my website as well uh so i have like i think 20 plus seats there but I, I love doing physical tactile experiences i've been speaking at festivals for the past couple of years and now i'm just transitioning into hosting retreats and i'll be i'll be doing one in the states eventually probably in january and a I've either Tucson or Sedona, Arizona, as I'll be hosting my first United States retreat on these philosophies and experiencing life and getting out there and maximizing through every potential, you know, work, love, play, spirituality, nature, all those different things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I love teaching in a tactile sense. You know, it's great to teach online, but I really love the most is being in front of a crowd of people and being able to interact with people directly. You can feel it on a different emotional level and energetic level too.
0: Mm-hmm. I was gonna say the energy must be completely different. And yeah, completely I mean, different. Like bio photons and stuff with people. When you get you know in person with them, you're exchanging these chemicals that I mean we don't see them, but yep. you don't get that from these these devices. So
1: yeah, that's that's a big problem with with again like I said gratification, people not appreciating what they create online or where the the ability we have to interact is that you can't feel that energetic exchange at all. It's not there. So you know I can I can make a video and have thirty thousand views. But my brain doesn't, it can't comprehend without the emotional experience or tactile experience, just how many people that is watching a video, you know, it's and it blows your mind because, you know, I'll go, I did an event uh, in Australia about three months ago, and I spoke to my biggest crowd yet, which is about 250 people. And it was scary. It was, I was blown away by how many people just 200 people is. And so it was an amazing event. You know, I I really enjoyed it. I loved it. It was great. I interacted with a lot of great people. But your brain doesn't comprehend how many people and how much energy that is to be around and to be presenting to and to work with, especially when we're all in that space together sharing the same intentions. Uh, So it made me really appreciate a lot more all the the online numbers, you know, that define the channels and the videos and and the content you create. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I imagine that would. So I know a lot of people would ask like where you see yourself in five years. We're in a very fast paced time right now. So I'm going to ask you two years, where do you see yourself or foresee yourself being in about two years time? Two years
1: time. Mm, I see myself traveling as I have been. Uh, I just now started traveling kind of full time. I'm only back for the summer to do this uh, summer event and to get ready for the India retreat. But I really just see myself continuing to do what I'm doing now, which is creating content online. Uh, creating books and workshops and and hopefully traveling full time around the world hosting these events and hosting these retreats and being able to interact. I think the more I can do that, the more affordable I can make it and the more people I can interact with and uh, assist. So it's really just kind of doing what I'm doing now but honing it into Mm -hmm. a more streamlined method that's easier to work with and that I can make more accessible to people. Mm -hmm.
0: It makes sense.
1: Sorry, give me one second. I gotta gotta grab the door real fast. Sorry about that,
0: problem. No, so I do. Uh, I don't have too many more questions for you. We're coming up on almost an hour, but um, one question I do have is if you could recommend three books, and if mm. you feel like you need to do five, you know, hit me with five. But what three books would you recommend for that someone picks up if they were interested in getting into spirituality, inner work, uh, and they don't have any any experience in that?
1: I would. Rec- I'm going to grab the books actually. because right, right. I have the library with me. I would recommend. And let's see what else. Okay, so I've got three good books for beginners. (laughs) First one is the one I hope most people know. It's the book that got me into spirituality on a lot of levels. It's the book to get most people into spirituality. It's Be Here Now, which I'm sure you've, I don't know if you've read it, but Baba Ram Dass. Uh, Very accessible, absolutely transformative. The pictures help a lot uh, when you don't know anything about what he's talking about, uh, if you're brand new to it. And the good thing about Be Here Now is that the more your practice evolves the more you can go back to it and it's like you're reading a completely different book because you're starting to drop into the paradigm on which he's speaking and you start to see it in a new light uh it's really powerful because of that another good book is uh it's called your erroneous zones by wayne dyer this is like an old copy uh wayne dyer was a really great teacher he died a few years ago but it's called yeah your uh zones and it's, it's really based on a lot of what I study in psychology. is called REBT therapy, Rational Emotive Behavioral Therapy. It's basically working with the cognitions of your mind and understanding how you are misrepresenting reality and situations to yourself by how you perceive it, how you speak about it, and how you feel about it. And it, it's very easy to really control completely your emotional vantage and your uh, logical vantage on reality and transform it completely by understanding how you speak of it and how you perceive it specifically. So this book is by Wayne Dyer. It's a really good introductory book to that philosophy and that psychology, that psychological uh, information. He basically, he did, one of the criticisms of the book is that it's, it's based on REBT therapy, which was created by uh, Albert Ellis, but Wayne Dyer didn't reference Albert Ellis at all in the book and didn't like say this is REBT therapy. And like a few years later, once psychologists were kind of like everything you said in that book was, was from dr ellis She was like yeah that's where the inspiration came from so it took him a while to admit it but regardless it's an amazing book with a lot of great information for beginners to kind of understand their own unconscious actions or to change their conscious actions and it can help them start to understand their own psychology which is really important to do you know whether or not we're spiritual doesn't matter if we don't understand why we think the way we do and why we act the way we do on, on a psychological level it doesn't matter how much we meditate it doesn't matter we have to understand why we speak to ourselves in certain ways why we think in certain ways and how we can change those into healthy methods of speaking and acting. And then uh, my third book, which is the only book I keep on my altar, is uh, the story of the guru in which the lineage I'm, I'm uh, initiated in. It's, uh, it's called The Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna. And uh, this this is Ramakrishna. So that's him. He was an Indian saint, a Jeevan Mukta, a liberated being who lived in the 1800s, and Everything he taught was basically non-dual Vedanta, which is that everything is one. All is one masquerading as multiplicity. Everything is just the divine playing out in different forms and that we are not separate from that. We are divinity incarnate and we can realize that. And a big thing he, he taught, which was a really transformative. Think about it in the 1800s was that all religions are correct. Every religion is a path to God. If you're practicing it purely, it's a path to truth and to personal liberation and to freedom from suffering if you're practicing purely. So, this is a book, you know, he had no dogma. He had no uh, caste or creed that he was against or for. He was a very, just a pure soul floating in and trying to show people that no matter where you're from or who you are, male, female, uh, religion or no religion, you can awaken through devotion and through selfless service and through realizing the divinity that's right in front of you. And uh, so he never wrote a book. So this whole book was written by one of his devotees after he died. Uh, So it's just a collection of his lessons and his teachings throughout his life and they're really potent and really powerful and they're they're full of truth which is the power you know you can read this and it transcends time it feels like something that would be evident in today's world but it's from the 1800s and that's just how truth works when it's it doesn't matter how long ago it was spoken it still resonates in any time frame possible because it's truth mm-hmm. so the gospel of sri ramakrishna it's very powerful
0: that's really cool i'm actually i'm not familiar with the last it's the two the last mm-hmm. two you mentioned there it's funny because you you mentioned be here now and it's like be here now is like um ramdas is like a disciple of mean Karoli baba yeah and then he created that book you know yeah. so it's like it's like it's, it's very similar to the third book there i actually yeah. i'll probably pick up the uh, the third one it sounds really interesting um, and funny enough, uh, Dwayne, his daughter, is going to be on this podcast next month. That's so, beautiful. Yeah, I, I think I might, because they're hosting some uh, retreat something or doing something like that. So I wanted to kind of pick her brain about it and actually mm-hmm. ask her about her father. But I think I'll probably read that before before speaking with her because I think it'll put me in a good place. But it sounds like that book is like a it's like an operating manual for the human technological brain, you know, like it's, it's like the, the psychology aspect and, and I'm sorry, with Sadhguru. Um, yes, and Anika, he, he alludes to that a lot. Like the human being is a technology and we're born without an operating manual. We're just like, here you go. Good luck. You know, so it's yep. good. The, it's a it's a neat book then I, I guess I'll, I'll check it out. It's, uh, the, the yeah, it's
1: actually, I, you know, I think it's one of the best-selling books of all time. I think it sold like 30, 35, 40 million copies. It's it's oh, crazy copies it sold. But uh, yeah, it's it's you know human psychology is it's it can if you go really deep into it it can be really complicated. But on a base level there's really simple fundamental things that once we understand completely shift how we see and think and we make it much more efficient. Like you said. Uh, a user manual doesn't have to be a million pages. It can be two pages, and once you memorize that two pages, you got it. You can you can build the desk. You know, if you get an IKEA set, you get five pages, and you build it. It works. So this book is really good at kind of deducing and making those things simple and making you realize, like he calls it, your erroneous zones—the zones in your life in which you're working through uh, erroneously. You're making errors in them. You're doing it incorrectly. And here's how you can fix that or, or change that.
0: Love it. Yeah. Perfect. Well, I think that's a good note to, to end on, and mm-hmm. I want to take this time just to thank you for coming yeah. on and having this conversation. It's been wonderful. Uh, I appreciate it so much. Appreciate everything you do. Thank you for you on uh, on YouTube and Instagram, and I'm sure we'll, we'll chat again sometime soon. Uh, do, do you just out of curiosity, would you ever consider starting a podcast yourself?
1: Uh, I had a podcast for a few months, like two and a half years ago, before it really took off. But I don't know. You know, I'm very big to be with, in my own intuition, and if I don't feel called to something, I don't force myself into it. And I think it's just because I create so many videos. You know, I create three to four videos a week, and they're all you know, 10 to sometimes 20 minutes long. So not only is there not time, but I just didn't feel. I didn't enjoy it, you know, the way a lot of people do. I mean, a lot of people enjoy podcasts and I like being on podcasts. This is always fun for me. I love going deep into philosophy and having discussions. But for me, it was almost like an undertaking. I didn't feel called to, to create my own podcast. It was just a lot. And, you know, maybe one day I'll revisit it. But right now I've got a lot of other things that are like really calling to me and that I feel drawn to. And so that's where my focus is right now. Mm Well,
0: it makes sense. Well, I guess just keep doing what you're doing with YouTube and everything else. And uh, you'll hit a million subscribers soon and then you'll, you'll get that brief feeling of like, all right, well, what about 1.1? What about 1.2? <laughs> yeah. Anyway. I'll work through it when I come to it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll send you a message as well once this is up so you have uh, a link to it. Yeah. Beautiful. All right. Yeah,
1: thank you. I'll, definitely share it. I'll definitely share it.
0: All right, cool. Thanks again, and uh, we'll talk soon. Yeah.
1: Thank you so much, for I'm wrong. Yeah.